0: This forum is part of the City Club's Authors and Conversation series, sponsored by the John P. Murphy Foundation and by the residents of Cuyahoga County through a public grant from Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. We're grateful for their generous support.
1: got my digital gong for a digital age here hello and welcome to our virtual happy dog takes on the world series i am tony ganser afternoon host at northeast ohio's npr station wcpn idea stream yesterday myanmar's military successfully launched another coup d'etat seizing power from a civilian government amid claims of massive voter fraud from their november election Democratically elected leader Aung San Suu Kyi and her top officials were arrested on the day when the newly elected parliament was set to convene to endorse the election results and approve the next government. This isn't the only time we've heard the word coup in recent weeks. Some used it to describe what happened January 6th in the U.S. when supporters of former President Donald Trump violently stormed the Capitol on the day Congress met to certify Joe Biden's win in the Electoral College. Riots followed Trump's rally on the National Mall, defending his belief that massive voter fraud played a role in his election loss. There's been no evidence of that. Both of these instances could be said to show the fragility of democracy. In Myanmar, the civilian government has been in power for just five years. The United States has, in its existence, championed a peaceful transfer of power. But the riot showed the violent potential of fiercely divided politics driving a mob. But was it a coup attempt, per se? Tonight, we'll talk with national experts about the different types of coups, address some of the myths and misconceptions, and what it actually takes to overthrow a democracy. Not that we're planning to do that. We're joined by Emily Berman, an associate professor at the University of Houston Law Center. Her research focuses on the unique separation of powers challenges that arise in the constitutional, statutory, and regulatory regimes governing national security policy. Dr. Berman, thanks so much for being here. And also joining us is Dr. Nanihal Singh, Assistant Professor of National Security Affairs at the U.S. Naval uh, College. He's also the author of Seizing Power, the Strategic Logic of Military Coups, a book on the dynamics and outcomes of military coups based on 300 hours of interviews and a statistical analysis of 471 coup attempts. Uh, Chapeau, Dr. Singh. Thanks for being here. Thank you. As in every City Club forum, you can participate with your questions, and we hope you do participate because that's one of the things that makes these things so fun. You can text them to 330-541-5794. You can see it on the screen, 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at the City Club, and uh, we'll try to work them in. They make it to me somehow. Uh, I still don't understand, but we'll, we'll fit in your questions. So with that, we can begin. And Dr. Singh, I want to start with the big question. When we talk about a coup, what even are we talking about? Because a lot of people, especially with what happened January 6th, some used coup right away. We've kind of settled on insurrection, at least in the media,
2: but what are we talking about? Can you help us? Sure. Um, Just uh, before I get started, to clarify, speaking as myself as a scholar and not on behalf of my employer or anyone else who pays my bills. Um, So when we talk about a coup, the the term is used by different people in different ways. And I have a particular sort of narrow political science use of the term. Um, And where all the definitions converge is they're all talking about some sort of illegitimate seizure of power particularly if it involves force. However, the way that political scientists tend to use the word, there's an extra ingredient, and that is that the seizure of power has to involve state military forces. It can't involve mercenaries or an outside invasion, or in this case, um, a civilian rabble, mob, or even an army, right? Right. All of those things are insurrections. If this had been an organized force that had invaded, it would have been a civil war. But there's a distinction between those two. And the reason is that a coup is a particular, it's like talking about how somebody, how you ended up getting robbed. There are different ways of getting robbed. You can get robbed at gunpoint. Someone else can come and bang you on the head and take your wallet. Someone can run by and grab your wallet the net result of all of these things is you lose your wallet. But if you understand the differences between the events, each each kind of thing requires a different kind of response. And in this case, the reason why I call it an insurrection and not a coup is that I feel that calling it a coup focuses our attention on the state security forces as the aggressors, whereas in this case, it was instead a partisan mob. Um, and by understanding that, we develop a much better understanding of how to address the situation.
1: Dr. Berman, do you agree with that?
0: Yeah, um, I do not have the, um, the background of, of studying coups such that I have a specific definition that I that I use in my work, but I definitely associate that word with uh, the military. Stepping in and, and taking taking power, and um, fortunately for the United States, it was really uh, the opposite circumstances here, where the military did sort of everything they could to to separate themselves from um, not just on January sixth, but even from the controversies such as it was surrounding the election outcome, and then of course it was um, the National Guard that came in and really got um, things under control.
1: So I'll, I'll play devil's advocate here and try to defend using coup in this instance, uh, if somebody has to play that role. But one of the things that came to mind right away was this group, the Oath Keepers, apparently of military members and also, um, well, active military members, uh, police officers, other security forces, current or former, uh, who were organized and apparently, based on the evidence we have here, had a plan, operational plan, uh, for the storming of the capital. And it got me thinking about the attempted coup in Turkey from 2016, where it was only part of the military, uh, which Erdogan tried to you know blame on a separatist movement which was not proven but it was part of the military that had rose up it was not necessarily the the full security structure but we still called that a coup even though it was part of the military so why can't we say with all these oath keepers that this is a coup too it's part of the military
2: dr singh so coups actually always involve some portion of the military they never involve everybody um even when in fact the people who are engaging in the coup claim that they're doing it on behalf of everybody. That claim itself is is highly suspect. However, the difference is whether or not they're operating as an organization or you have a handful of military individuals. And if you look at what the Oath Keepers were doing, you know, they're, they're walking around and they've got these fake insignia and they're operating in a sort of disorganized way with with a whole bunch of other civilians mixed in. And if, in fact, there had been an attack by a military unit or by a number of military units, it would have been much harder to stop. It would have required sort of a forcible response by another uh, force within the military. And we didn't see that. Instead, what we saw was, unfortunately, probably around 30 or 40, this is my best guess based on, on what I... I know from reading journalists, 30 or 40 both active service members, National Guard and also ex-service members who violated their oath and who were working together with a whole bunch of local militias and other hangers-on to come in. But one of the things that you see is that it was a largely disorganized effort. It's, It's not to say there was no organization. There was. Apparently, there were three different groups that met ahead of time in parking lots. But this is very different from, let's say, the raid on bin Laden, right? The highly organized, tightly synchronized, efficient military action. And something like that would have been a good deal more catastrophic. But as you point out, the military has tried to stay out of it. In fact, may have been bending over so far backwards to stay out of it that they failed to respond as quickly as as they should have. Um, You mentioned Myanmar. You can see what happens when the military actually gets involved. Um, And the U.S. military is a good deal more proficient and powerful than the Myanmar military. Something like that would have felt very different. So to belabor this
1: point, uh, Ohio is is deep in this because apparently there was this uh, self-described Ohio state militia, which had active members, which did organize before beforehand. They had clear operational goals. Um, They had uh, materials, Um, even though that shows organization of a paramilitary nature. That still does not qualify as a coup, just to belabor the point.
2: Because because they're outside the state. There are a few soldiers who've joined into this private paramilitary. This is actually not unusual during civil wars. Um, You have soldiers who will actually join in and support the rebels. Um, In Sierra Leone, they were known as sobels. Soldiers by day, they wanted a paycheck. But at night, they would go over to the rebels, and they would organize, and they would assist them. Um, this is the sort of thing that happens when you have an incipient conflict brewing in your country, um, and so it's it's not to say that it wasn't serious, but it was the Ohio Ohio militia, as opposed to the Ohio National Guard or any of the U.S. military organizations, and the level of proficiency and organization and everything else is is quite different. These are guys who are playing soldiers. Hmm. Uh,
1: Dr. Berman, when we think about the military involvement, as we've talked about, you know, the, the formal military hierarchy has bent over backwards to say, we're, <laughs> this is not us, you know. Uh, but um, can the military even do anything without uh, the civilian... Um, executives ordering them to, like they they couldn't just show up at the Capitol and say, okay, the Army's protecting everything now, right? Uh, There there does have to be due process.
0: Certainly, there are are numerous restrictions on what the U.S. military can do domestically. Um, And there are different rules that relate to National Guard troops uh, as opposed to active duty service members, um, the National Guard can be uh, under often or under the control of state governors, but they can be federalized. So there are lots of different ways that various aspects of the U.S. military can get involved, but they can't simply operate as law enforcement officials. That is um, is banned in a, a statute called the Posse Comitatus Act. and um, Unless there, uh, there is a, an insurrection sort of um, it's, uh, exception to Posse Comitatus. Um, but even then uh, even if that was invoked, it would be by the civilian chain of command, not um, you know the military acting on its own.
1: Dr. Singh, did you have something?
2: No, no, I, I agree.
1: Okay. Uh, well, Dr. Berman, maybe if we go down that road a little more about insurrection, we've kind of covered the the definition of coup. So maybe we, we set the table here on what an insurrection is and why that fits this situation in the United States uh, better than coup.
0: Yeah. So an insurrection, and this is not something that is defined in the U.S. Code, uh, but an insurrection generally is viewed as... Um, an act of violence revolting against um, the authority of an established government. So it's, um, you know, it's similar to the, the idea of the coup, but without the military involvement. So it's really any instance of um, citizens or residents rising up, um, using violence to try to uh, defy the authority that is um, that is currently in power
1: what distinguishes this from just terrorism or, or violent criminals? Like what, what specifically is an insurrection? Why, why can't we just dismiss this as domestic terrorism on its own?
0: Yeah. So, so terrorism is an act of violence, um, whose purpose is to, um, sway the political officials or, um, or the, the public, public opinion. So there is sort of a political element to terrorism. Um, at the same time, those acts are, um, they're not actually um, targeted at overcoming or displacing the existing authority structure. They're simply engaging in violence um, in the pursuit of some political goal Whereas an insurrection is really um, against the legal authority that's in place, not just sort of a, an act of violence anywhere.
1: So Dr. Singh, in my introduction, I kind of juxtaposed what's happening in Myanmar with what we saw on the 6th. And I've seen that a number of times in think pieces, on social media, people were are, are quick to draw those parallels. I wonder if you would just address that juxtaposition uh, from your academic perch. Uh, why does it fit or or not fit in, in uh, your view
2: and your expertise? There are a number of very clear similarities. Um, both of them happened after November election, where one major political faction refused to accept the results. And the reason why they refused to accept the results was they said, that there had been problems with voting. And in this case, they claimed that people shouldn't have voted who did. And that accusation was specifically about political minorities. So all of this sounds very eerie. However, there are sort of two differences. One of them is what happened as a result. In both cases, people attempted to interrupt the counting of the votes. But in Myanmar, it happened, it was the military that acted. And because it was the military that acted, they were very quickly able to establish complete control, grab the opposition politicians, throw them into jail. And it was over very quickly. Um, In the case of January 6th, the rabble attacked the Capitol. Um, You have 140 police officers get injured But they don't actually manage to do anything more than disrupt and threaten. And I want to be careful. On the one hand, this was a highly disruptive, tragic, threatening event. If you saw uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez talking about how harrowing it was and how close she believed she came to losing her life, it, it was a horrific event. So it was very horrific for the people who were being targeted. But in terms of its impact on our democracy, these guys came into the Capitol and they milled around for a little while. They stole Nancy Pelosi's laptop and then they left. They weren't able to successfully seize power in any way. And later that night, the Senate certified the vote and Biden's inauguration went through. And so their impact was a lot weaker. And that's where you can see the differences in the actors between the military and non-military actors. Um, One of the places, so I was having this discussion a lot after January 6th and people said, why are you so hung up? And one of the reasons why I was insisting on approaching it one way rather than another isn't that the words are magic, right? I actually don't care what you call it. The question is, how do we understand what happened? Who was involved, who is to blame and who can we then act against? And if it's an insurrection, you want to look, for example, at communication strategies. You want to look at who was involved, how they were organized, who gave them legitimacy. And one of the things you notice is that Trump was communicating to these people and he was encouraging them. And also that there were a large number, that there were a number of Republican politicians who were also encouraging this. And so understanding it as an insurrection led to Trump's deplatforming and also um, the loss of of, uh, donations, corporate donations, to a number of politicians. And if it had been a coup, we would have looked at the state security apparatus, and we would have missed some of these dynamics. And so that's the part which is important. It's not what we call it. It's the diagnosis and therefore the set of remedies that we come up with as a result.
1: Uh, just a reminder, if you have questions as you're watching our conversation, you can text them to 330-541-5794 on the screen for your convenience, Three three zero five four one five seven nine four. 541 5794 You can also tweet them at the City Club, and they will be delivered to me as this question uh, coming from a third-year law student at Cleveland Marshall School of Law. Uh, The question is, if an insurrection is definitionally against the established government, was this an insurrection? We've kind of covered that. President Trump did not decry their actions, so why would this be seen as against the government when President Trump was the president? He is the government. Uh, So maybe Dr. Berman, take that first?
0: Well, um, he is the president. That that does not mean he is the government. Um, So in the United States, we have three branches of um, the federal government each of which uh, represents part of U.S. sovereignty and so um, simply because the president has a particular view that's not necessarily the view of the government writ large and here I would say this was against the government because the the purpose of it seemed to be to prevent congress from doing its constitutionally assigned duty of Counting the electoral votes and affirming the the outcome of the presidential election. And so to disrupt that process, which is so fundamental really to to a democratic government, um, there's really no place that you could strike closer to the heart of the government than trying to disrupt um, the process of of a presidential transition like that.
2: And in fact, it's very important to separate the person of the president from the government. We, I, I take, as a U.S. government employee, I took an oath, but I don't take an oath to the president. I have no obligation to obey the president. I have an obligation to obey the law and to defend and protect the Constitution of the United States. And one of the things about The way in which America is founded is it's founded around an idea that the government is not a person. We are a government of laws, not men. How much we achieve that is is a different matter. But at, at least in theory, the government is very different from the president. And that's exactly why presidents can lose elections and why they get removed. And then there's another president.
1: Uh, Dr. Berman, with this being now an insurrection, as we've covered here, how does that affect how these people would be prosecuted and how our national security structure considers them? Uh, are are they just, as we talked about terrorism before, maybe that's not a perfect fit, but how does our system address these individuals doing what they did?
0: Yeah, so... Um so it's a hard question to answer in the abstract simply because there was such a broad range of activities that went on. And so you can see if you look at the various charges that have already been brought, some people are accused of trespassing or you know, being in a federal building without permission to be there, that sort of thing. Um, on the other hand, you have people now who are being accused of, of conspiracy Um, if they're able to determine who was involved in the death of the Capitol police officer, there would almost certainly be homicide charges on the table. Um, there's the possibility of, um, seditious conspiracy, um, engaging in, in sedition against the United States and also, um, rebellion or insurrection itself is a crime. So. Um, so I think we're going to see a broad range of charges, some of which include um, you know, less significant penalties and some of which uh, could be quite serious indeed. Uh,
1: this question is probably for you, Dr. Berman, uh, but maybe Dr. Singh, you want to comment as well. Ah, uh, this person says maybe the goal of the United States insurrectionists was not to stop the vote necessarily, but to recruit for their cause. How useful are actions like this as being a recruitment tool? Don't they build up legitimacy by being able to attack the Capitol at all? Uh, do you have any thoughts on that, Dr. Berman?
0: Oh, I think I think they absolutely um, gained legitimacy um, from that action and from. To the, their success to the extent that they had it of actually having gotten into uh, the Capitol, I think many people that were involved in it viewed it as a success. Um, I've seen video, um, you know, social media videos of, of people who were there saying, we can go home now because um, we won, we got in. Um, and so when it comes to these sort of um, extremist, violent, violent movements, anything like this, that sort of um, amplifies their message. That presents them as some sort, you know, some in some potentially glorified manner. Um, that's always going to be a boon uh, for recruitment.
1: Any thoughts on that, Doctor
2: Um, I agree with uh, Professor Berman. I one of the things this reminds me about is. America's history and the period, you know, going up through Reconstruction where after the end of the Civil War, the Southern states went through a period of intense political violence. And we have antecedents to what we, what the, um, what the insurrectionists would like to do, which is they would like to build themselves up into some sort of threat to the state. And it's not that it can't happen in America, in fact, it has happened before in America. And over the same set of issues, which are largely ones of legitimacy and race, who has a right to be part of the polity, whose votes count. Um, Before it was literally about whether or not African-Americans could vote. And now it's much more about whether or not we're going to count those votes. But um, both cases, we're looking at a very deep fault line in America, which is that of racism. Hmm. Uh,
1: To go back to the idea of coup, this person asks, uh, Dr. Singh, do you think we have to worry about a coup in the United States, or are our structures strong enough to resist even the military uh, turning, or could the military
2: turn? Um, There is no country in the world which is impervious to having a coup. the whole reason is that if you empower the military to be able to act with any sort of discretion, you are allowing for the possibility that some number of them might try to exceed their roles. Now, what does that mean? It might mean, for example, that someday we see a small number of people. Some of the coup attempts that I studied were 10 people or 20 people. There were these, fail, these attempts that were doomed to fail. But sometimes people are reckless and they engage in them. Now, what protects us is not so much that people can't engage in a coup. It's that if some group of people attempt to engage in a coup, the rest of the military is likely to block them. And I think that's a much surer bet. Um, Half of all coups in the world fail. And the reason why they fail is because other military actors act to defeat them. And one of the things about the United States military is it has a very strong norm of no, no intervention in politics. The military wants to be outside of partisan politics. Um, it is also a very decentralized organization. And I remember when I started studying this, having a conversation with someone who joked, and he said, which branch of the US military would commit a coup and which other branch would allow them? He said, look, if the army did it, the marines would stop them. If in you know, and he went through every single possible uh, actor, and he pointed out that no one, other groups of the military would never let that part of the military actually seize power. And so, both the normative—I mean, I put a good deal of stock in the fact that we have very strong norms, um, but also the fact that our our military is such that it is unlikely. That you would have a consensus or a coming together around something um, like overthrowing the government. I think those two things are are where we're protected.
1: This next question, uh, maybe Dr. Berman. Uh, this person says short-term impact of an uncoordinated rabble may not be large, but what about the normalization of support for extremist authoritarianism or terrorism? Uh, to be able to advance political goals? Is this something we're going to have to deal with on a regular basis now in this country?
0: Unfortunately, I mean, I think that's that's a real risk. Um, So Dr. Singh is talking about norms. Um, The Trump administration sort of famously dispensed with many of the norms around uh, civility, around uh, respect for your opponents, around honoring the outcome of a democratic election. Um, And as you sort of reject these um, norms and and institutions of democracy uh, and you feel that your, your democracy is not functioning as it should, because we have to remember these people have been told that the election was stolen from them. And some people believe that. Uh, and so, when you feel like the, the the political process has excluded you or cheated you, then your recourse is on, is to take action outside the political process. And so, when people don't feel heard, don't feel like their um, their perspective is getting the the power or the the response or the attention that it deserves. Um, that tends to push people outside the political system. And I think we're at a very tenuous um, spot right now because um, I think it's a difficult balance between recognizing that there is this sentiment um, within some sectors of society that it's very deeply held and sincere and um, poses a significant threat of violence um, as both the FBI and Department of Homeland Security recently have warned us. Uh, at the same time, um, simply dwelling on that then provides more oxygen for these forces by publicizing them, by giving people uh, in leadership roles in those organizations, you know, more airtime essentially. Um, and so, I think we have to find a way to to address the problem um, while still somehow um, sort of minimizing it, making it um, once again something that is simply viewed uh, by the vast majority of Americans as as beyond the pale and an unacceptable means of expressing your political views.
1: This question's about uh, former President Trump's, um, I guess, liability here. Is the fact that uh, at least part of this uh rioting and storming of the Capitol was planned before January 6th. Does that decrease his liability uh attached to this event? Uh, since the rally, uh, the day of is is often being cited as uh inciting uh the the emotion and the violence in this crowd. But if it was planned beforehand, does that take him out of this in some sort of Legal sense it's not clarified, but maybe Dr. Berman first
0: yeah, so I think um, that that last point you make I think is an important one so there's legal liability uh, and then there's moral liability, right and the two don't necessarily always go hand in hand. Um, so on the one hand, there may not be sufficient evidence um, to actually accuse or prosecute President Trump for incitement to violence as it is defined in the u.s code um, at the same time um, it's not as if he'd been silent prior to january 6. the whole reason that people were there and the reason they were so emotional was because he'd been lying to them since before the election the only way we can lose is if it's rigged and by continually beating on that drum and not conceding um and not allowing other republicans in power uh to to recognize joe biden as the president um you know that's where this this pent-up anger has come from so so even if if it wasn't him that said okay now everyone let's go um from the capitol which he kind of did on january 6th but but um the planning that went on before that um was not entirely independent of Donald Trump's actions. He encouraged people to to be upset. He said, come to D.C. on January 6th. It's going to be wild. Um, so it's really a whole um, pattern of behavior with him, not isolated to January 6th.
1: We do have a a number of questions coming in. I'm weaving them in. Uh, There's still room for you. We have about a half hour left with uh, Drs. Berman and Singh. You can text your questions to 330-541-5794. 330-541-5794, Three three zero five four one five seven nine four, 541 5794 or tweet them at the City Club, and they're sent to me directly. Uh, this question from a high school student in uh, Shaker Heights, maybe Dr. Singh first. Could you comment on the delay in authorizing troops, uh, I presume National Guard, to put down the insurrection, and how does that fit into how we consider a military role? Is inaction inaction?
2: Um, So that's a very interesting question, and it gets us sort of deep into the weeds. There are two sets of issues here. One is the question of exactly what happened, when it happened, to what extent were, was the military reluctant to intervene? Were they held back by other political actors? And there, I would say that we're still finding out exactly what occurred. And so I don't want to jump the gun on that. I will say that sort of my gut sense is that what we saw were a series of bureaucratic snafus rather than a deliberate refusal to help the constituted authorities. Um, And one of the things you know when you work within the military is the military is a very slow and ponderous organization outside of a narrow set of circumstances, particularly when they're confronted with something that they haven't thought about ahead of time. So the idea that someone might have delayed for a few hours is not at all surprising to anyone who spent any time within the military. Um, But to the second point, they are right that sometimes inaction can be part of a coup. And this happens when you have a revolution and a coup together. So for example, a number of popular revolutions, the Arab Spring revolutions in Tunisia or in Egypt, happened where you had a popular uprising in the streets. And then when the military was asked to defend the presidency from this revolution, they said, no, we're not going to do it. We won't open fire. We're not going to support the president. And at that point, the president was forced to back down and resign. But that isn't what we see here. What we saw was a slight delay as they tried to figure out what they were supposed to be doing, which was very different from the military saying, you know what, we're more than happy to let Congress get slaughtered. And and part of what you saw was a set of jurisdictional issues, right? The Capitol Hill police have very jealously guarded their jurisdiction. This is their territory. It's not someone else's. And so when they ask for help from outside actors, those outside actors don't necessarily know how to proceed. I think there were a number of very disturbing things that we saw that day. Um, I think we likely saw a couple of Capitol Hill policemen um, perhaps cooperating with, with uh, the, with the attackers. We saw others perhaps um, withdrawing and we saw lots of others fighting back. Um, But, I don't think what we saw was an organized effort by the military to say, you know what, we're out, we're happy to let the government fall, we're happy to let uh, Congress get slaughtered. And and this goes back to an earlier uh, remark that Professor Berman was making. And that is, how is it that we're going to deal with the fact that these movements are now moving forward and they view this as a success. They're gonna to try to keep recruiting. One of the things we have to remember is that while QAnon beliefs are not held by all of them, um, QAnon does talk about there being a day of reckoning where they would round up democratic politicians and execute them for their role in this cabal, pedophilic cabal where they are allegedly going around and sexually assaulting little children. And the fact that there are groups out there that talk about doing this is something that I think we need to take very seriously. But it doesn't make it a coup.
1: Well, you actually uh, segue into this question fairly well. Uh, Are there instances of military coups being legitimized via popular support? Are coups ever desirable from a liberal democracy perspective? This person imagines not, but maybe a truly corrupt government versus a norm-respecting military with popular support provides a foil to our classic coup narrative.
2: So what I would say on that is that It's not that a coup is a good thing or a bad thing. The question is what comes afterwards, right? There are a number of coups which have overthrown dictatorships and moved the country into democracy. For example, in 1972, what was called the third wave of democracy started with a coup in Portugal, which overthrew the dictator, Salazar, and transformed the country into democracy. And that one democratization then touched off a whole wave of democratizations that culminated in the 1989 and 1990 end of the Cold War. Um, the overthrow of Ceausescu in Romania happened with the involvement of the military and is a coup. Um, the overthrow of um, Fernand Marcos In 1986, in the Philippines, the people power movement happened because the military decided that they would side with the protesters against the president. And like I said, some of the Arab Spring revolutions involved the military. Um, Also, other times you have military coups which don't involve popular uprisings, but which do transform a country from a dictatorship into a democracy. So this is why I think the question to ask is always, what happens next? Where does where is the country going to go? It's very hard for outside actors to have very much of a role in influencing whether a coup succeeds or fails. But there's a good deal more latitude for them to influence what kind of government comes next, whether in a week, or a month or a year. And this is one of these things that we we as liberal democrats should pay attention to. How do we try to transform the post-coup environment so that we can support uh, democracy?
1: Is there any correlation that you've seen between the rise of authoritarian regimes and the potential for
2: coups or or actual coups? In in fact, most authoritarian regimes are ended by coups. Now, Oftentimes, these are coups where someone is overthrowing an authoritarian re- leader and they want to take power and declare their own dictatorship. It's not that those coups are necessarily good. It's just to say that the it is hard for an authoritarian regime to end. And one of the ways in which they do end, um, I think it's that the numbers are something like 75% of all ends of all authoritarian regimes happen because of coups. It doesn't happen because of of popular revolts in the streets or democratic movements without the support of the military. Um, Dictators, once they're embedded and they have military support, it's very hard to shake them loose unless you can separate them from the military.
1: Hmm. Uh, This next question, uh, maybe Dr. Berman first. Realizing democracies are fragile and not necessarily long lasting, are there any red flags Americans should be looking for in the short or long term Uh, I assume in terms of testing our institutions again and and what qualifies as a genuine threat to democracy or just a criminal action?
0: Yeah, I think um, one of the most concerning red flags um, with respect to democracy in the United States is um, the absence of a shared set of facts. Um, you can disagree with someone on policy, but if you can't agree on the facts, there there is no bridging that divide. And so um, the to the extent that this, the misinformation is out there, whether it's social media, whether it's you know right wing broadcasting, whether it's the politicians themselves, um, I think it's 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 really difficult to imagine Americans coming to a point where we sort of restore that sort of shared sense and what it means to be American and respect for one another, um, though we may differ in in our opinions quite quite strongly. Um, And so I think that getting a handle on these things like QAnon um, that really create this alternative universe of facts, um, is, is really dangerous because democracy is an idea, right? We all just decide that this is how we're going to do it. And we, um, have our elections and we all say, "Oh, too bad I lost maybe next time or yay, we won. Um, but Once, again, sort of goes back to what I was saying before, once people feel like that system is no longer functioning for them, then um, then they don't have faith in the outcome of elections. That's when democracy really hits some um, turbulent waters.
2: Can I come in on that? Um, Yeah, please. I'm going to be a little bit more critical and cranky, perhaps, than my colleague is. The first is, if you look at the people who attack the Capitol, there should be no one who's defending them. And, and in fact, there are people out there who are defending them, right? There was a guy out there who's wearing a shirt which said 6MWE. Six million wasn't enough. It was a pro-Holocaust shirt. There's another guy who is wearing a Camp Auschwitz shirt, right? I grew up in a neighborhood of Holocaust survivors. Elie Wiesel was actually my next lived across the street from me. This is something I take very seriously and very personally. These There were literal Nazis in that group. And it should not be hard for Americans to say, we reject this. I mean, that is allegedly what World War II was all about. So that's the first point. the The second point is that this shows us something else, that in fact, I think there are two different understandings of democracy. One of them is this idea that democracy is about a process and Americans are free and we are equal and nobody's above the law. But there's also another notion of what it means to be an American, which is an ethno-nationalist understanding, right? And it's democracy is a game that's played by wealthy white men. And as long as it's played within that elite, it's okay. But... The minute you have outsiders, the minute you have guys like Obama or uh, women like Hillary Clinton or now Kamala Harris waiting in the wings as the vice president for the oldest president we've ever had, that this must be illegitimate. And so what we're seeing is these people who have this understanding of, democ- of America, which is not about democracy and equality and freedom and rule of law, but is instead about. Uh, about old white men ruling, and if they aren't, then that's unfair, which goes to the third point, which is that democracy is much younger than we admit um and in fact, we've only been a fully democratic state since nineteen sixty five and that happened as a result of a good deal of bloodshed and it, incidents like this remind me how Recent, our democracy is, and perhaps how shallow the roots are amongst some people in the population. Yeah,
1: that that's really poignant. A fully democratic state since nineteen sixty-five. Often people think that uh, you know the Constitution formed our our democracy, our democratic republic, but but obviously uh, there was a. a a lot of change that had to take place before everybody uh, had agency uh in, in this nation and and still it's a struggle. Um with that being said, then um it seems like this popular movement, I don't know what we call it, uh, because not all people who storm the Capitol are members of QAnon. Um some of them have legitimate political grievance. Um but how does that fit into a functioning democracy? Or is that the big question that we we don't know, as you said, Dr. Berman, if we're operating with two sets of facts and in two universes or multiple universes, how do we even function within a democracy anymore? Or is there always going to be a group off to the side, um, not within our formal institutions? Uh, if that's a if there's a question in there,
0: yeah. I mean, I think there will always be uh, a group off to the side. There will always be some slice of the population that refuses to accept um, the legitimacy of um, you know an actual full democracy where everyone is is a participant regardless of race, color, background, uh, gender, etc. The question is how how big a slice of that population is it going to be, and whether they're going to be validated. So I think for for a long, long time, even though those views were out there, it wasn't considered acceptable to express neo-Nazi type views, um, except within certain circles. Um, Then President Obama was elected, um and that started to, to ramp up a little more. And then um President Trump was elected and seemed to really welcome that sort of sentiment. And so um so I think that it's it's always going to be out there, but it's incumbent on our leaders to reject that very explicitly and consistently, um, whenever that sort of issue arises. Um, and then it'll, you know, it'll, it'll live on the, on the fringes like, like it has for so long. Um, but so long as they've got people in power who are espousing their views, um, defending what they've done, calling them patriots, um, that's, that's not, um, that's not a way to sort of, um, heal, <laughs> heal the rifts that seem to, to, to be with
1: us. Did you have anything to add on that, Dr. Singh? Okay. Well, I will ask you this question. We've, we've kind of had a train of thought and I've continued on it. There was a question, uh, Dr. Singh, could you, Discuss the extent to which the us has supported coups in the past latin america being um uh coming to mind but also elsewhere what interests drove that involvement how did it relate to america's professed interest in supporting democracy Uh, you're muted there
2: if you can unmute just yeah no problem thank you for for flagging that um during the Cold War, the United States was not so much interested in promoting democracy as they were interested in fighting communism. And so they tried to mount a coup in Iran. They backed a coup in Chile. They backed any number of coups against communists. And so there's a, there's a long history of that. The switch over to a foreign policy which was firmly pro-democratic only happens after the end of communism. And even now you will see high government officials such as former Secretary of State, uh, Secretary of Defense, Robert Gates, saying they're not sure if the Arab Spring was a good idea for America, um, which is an argument that the United States has interests which are more imp- more powerful or more important. Than its uh, commitment to democracy overseas, I think that's a that's a deep mistake.
1: Uh, so, going forward, we're we're approaching the second impeachment trial of former President Trump, and I think. Uh, there's going to be a lot of talk about the insurrection, and we'll see if the word coup is uh, thrown around as well uh, within the uh, within the trial, uh, depending on how much of a trial we actually get. But I wonder if uh, each of you maybe uh, would give us some final thoughts about thinking about the gravity of what happened January 6th, especially if we're going to be relitigating and hearing a lot of things. Facts and alternate facts together uh, uh, as this trial comes uh, next week. So, uh, Dr. Berman, maybe start and then Dr. Singh.
0: Yeah, so I think in in some ways it'll be um, quite a valuable exercise in that um, I think the house managers will put on a very uh, persuasive case that will be a very um, explicit review. Of, of what happened and the, the real violence that was done um, to the Capitol and to the people there. And, and so I think that is something it will be good for um, Americans uh, to see and to pay, to have their attention called um, to those facts. Um, I think that the likelihood that, that the Republicans will engage with those facts um seems to be quite low um and so in some ways i think what we're going to see is the two sides are talking past each other so the house managers are saying donald trump's responsible and the republicans responding um and donald trump's defense attorneys well he's out of office so you can't impeach him and so what are we even talking about um and so i think the 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 impeachment itself um is not going to solve anything um i think it's important for uh for various you know reasons of you know expressing disapproval of this kind of behavior uh, of setting of establishing a record um of what went on but um i don't know that it puts us in any better position um to prevent this kind of of things from happening than we were in on January 5th?
2: I think if it's successful, it may increasingly marginalize the Trumpists, and in particular, the the ones who are flirting with violence. I think one of the things it could do is right now, there's a huge deal of denial about what happened on January 6th. And if in fact, the FBI starts... Um, throwing people into jail, and there's not just the impeachment of Donald Trump. There are 400 different trials, and there's a lot of other evidence that comes out. I think it will become increasingly hard for people who pretend that they are law and order conservatives to maintain some of their denial, particularly when a police officer was killed and another one was beaten badly, ironically enough, with a Blue Lives Matter flag which shows you what what that flag actually means. Um, So I think part of what happens here is that we need to establish the facts of what went on and to put that into the public discourse. Look, when Nixon uh, resigned, he still had around a third of the nation supporting him. You can continue to have people supporting Trump what happened was that Nixon's reputation was forever tarnished. And so this is something that um, uh, uh, one political commentator refers to as the OJ option, right? Um, this is uh, former FBI agent Asha Rangapa. She doesn't think that Trump will, I mean, she and lots of other people don't think that Trump will actually be convicted at the end of this trial. The Senate looks like it'll hold on partisan lines but his reputation may be substantially damaged and he may get caught on further chicanery that he engages in, particularly some of the fraudulent financial activity which has been buzzing around him if he becomes implicated in that. And he may no longer be protected by the aura of of the president. And I think that would be important. I, I don't think this is going to be a situation where we can transform the, what happened in a day. I think what, what you're going to have to do is bit by bit insist on the truth, put facts into evidence, but also resist the calls to impunity by holding people to account, starting with the small fry, but not stopping there and working your way to the to the top. America did, if you look back at Reconstruction, America had a period of of attempted transformation and then they backed off. And there were incidents like this for example in Wilmington North Carolina where there was a black man who was elected and a mob showed up and they managed to over overthrow him even though he was the democratically elected mayor. There was a similar uh, incident in north in in New Orleans. Um and uh, there was an effort to heal the nation basically by forgetting all of the sins of the Confederacy and pretending that nothing bad had happened. We can't do that again. Um, One of the reasons why we can't do that is because the demographics of America are going to continue to change. They can't actually uh, create a peace based on um, this sort of denial. So the only way through this is through the middle of this. And um, hopefully people will have the, um, the persistence and the conviction to hold people accountable.
1: And Dr. Berman, uh, just a final thought. Do you think that's happening? Your, your view of the justice system and how things are working? We're, we're seeing cases being pursued, but is it to the extent that you think shows that commitment to rule and law?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that remains to be seen. Um, there have been numerous arrests and, and conviction, some, and some, uh, indictments. Um, there's been the impeachment. So there's been some effort. I think, I think we'll know more if, and when, um, we get, uh, an attorney general confirmed, um, to run the justice department. I think there's probably a lot of sort of you know, policy issues, and you know, how far do we want to push this? How many people do we want to prosecute? Are there sort of minimal property crimes that we want to ignore? That's going to be a policy decision that's going to have to come um, from the top. And so, um, so I think I think we'll see that. I think there's a there's some evidence that there is a push to have. Um, you know, hearings to investigate what went wrong, the, the, the security um, apparatus. And I think that kind of record will be um, quite helpful. So I think I think we'll see some, um, some people will be held to account and we will learn a lot more about what happened both before um, and during the events of, of January 6th. Whether the the people in, political office, who, in my view, um, were complicit through their refusal to recognize um, the outcome of the election, whether they will be held accountable, I think, um, you know, I think the Republican Party right now is trying um, to battle it out to see um, if they will, or, or if they won't. And so... We're going to have to see, I think, how that goes in the next year or
2: two. Can I add one small thing here? I would love to see full legal responsibility, uh, full legal liability here. But there are lots of other ways to hold people responsible. And one of them is in terms of trying to tarnish them so that they no longer receive corporate donations. And this is something where mass action can have a role because you can make it very clear to corporations that continue to support politicians who are anti-democratic that you'll take your business elsewhere. And so there may be ways in which if we are committed to the practice of democracy and to the ideals of democracy, that we can have people feel some cost for their, for their action.
1: Thank you for that. And thank everybody uh, for joining us for today's virtual Happy Dog Takes on the World Forum. We've been talking about coups and the fragility of democracy with Professor Emily Berman from the University of Houston Law Center and Dr. Hall Singh, Assistant Professor of National Security Affairs at the U.S. Naval War College and author of Seizing Power, the strategic logic of military coups. Happy Dog Takes on the World is presented with support of an anonymous donor and is a collaborative effort between the City Club of Cleveland, the Cleveland Council on World Affairs, the Happy Dog, Northeast Ohio Consortium of Middle Eastern Studies and Idea Stream. And we do appreciate this partnership. Tonight's forum on National Tater Tot Day is part of our Authors in Conversation series, sponsored by the John P. Murphy Foundation, supported in part by the residents of Cuyahoga County through a public grant from Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. All City Club forums are sponsored by many generous members, sponsors, donors. You can find them all in at cityclub.org, and we thank them all very much. I'm Tony Ganzer. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Our forum is adjourned, and I will ring the digital gong one more time. Thanks, everybody, for being here. Appreciate it.